When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick they actually got me into reading stats for anything you're tuned in to the investing for beginners podcast led by andrew sather and dave ahern step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners your path to financial freedom starts now starts now All right, folks. Well, before we dive into today's episode, Andrew and I discuss some fairly advanced topics towards the end of the show. If you are a brand new listener to the show and brand new to investing, please go back and listen to episodes 43 through 47. They will give you a great basis and foundation before you dive into today's show. So without any further ado, we'll go ahead and get started. All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 235. So tonight we're going to answer three great listener questions we got recently, and we're going to do our little give and take, and we have some interesting topics to discuss tonight. So I will go ahead and read the first question without any further ado. So I have, hi, my name is Alicia, and I started listening to your podcast a few weeks ago. I am a pretty linear person, so I just listen in order. I have some questions that you have probably already answered on the show, so I'm not sure if it would be useful for me to ask them or just keep listening. Some questions I had. Number one, you talk about how this is uh, targeted to beginners and your average investor. Could you give me an idea about what average is considered to be? I am a beginner and am lucky enough to be in the tech field, but I'm curious if this was realistic to someone who makes, say, 50000 a year. So let's maybe we'll answer that first part, and then we can touch on the second question. So, Andrew, take it away. What do you think of Alicia's first part of her question here? I would say first. First and foremost, thank you for writing in and don't ever feel like a question doesn't deserve to at least be shot in the dark towards us. I don't mind re-answering questions sometimes, especially because we get people who 
are listening for the first time and maybe didn't hear about the question. So it turns out we haven't answered this question before, and I'm happy to. I would say two or three years ago, before we redesigned the blog and then we redesigned it again, there used to be this graphic on there with these words where it basically said, hey, if you were you know, in your 30s, if you had the median income, and if you saved for this amount of time, you would have this amount of money. And at that time was just a few years ago, the median income in the United States was around 55000 a year, I believe. I mean, that could have changed in the last couple of years. But to say like at $50,000 a year, my an average investor, I would say, yeah, why not? Average is, is all relative, obviously. But I think what's a trend that we're seeing pick up nowadays with the advancement of the internet and all of the great brokerages who have lowered their commission fees down to basically zero and more and more information just being spread through the internet, through podcasts, all of the channels. People are just getting more educated. They're getting more interested and they're realizing that you don't have to have a ton of money to start. And the, the sooner you put money in, the faster you can get that snowball effect to work on your wealth. So I would, if I was somebody making 50,000 a year, yeah, it's a great time to start. And if you're making a hundred thousand a year, even better. But I would say anybody in that range, for sure, it applies to you. If you have extra money to put away, it applies to you, regardless of what your income is. Yeah, exactly. It really comes down to the money that you can start investing. And like Andrew said, the sooner you can start, the sooner you can start compounding that wealth. And like Andrew was saying, with all the brokerages reducing their fees, in many cases, making them zero, there's a lot less friction to people starting to invest. And with the additional benefit of adding partial shares to so many companies that you can buy. I mean, Amazon now is $109 a share after the stock split recently. And I think Spotify, well, after their unfortunate big drop, or Shopify, I'm sorry, after their big drop in share price is now, I think, and their stock split, it's like $30 a share. Amazon just did theirs. Google's going to do theirs this week, I believe. And or maybe next week. And so that's going to be in the $100, $200 range a share. You can still buy partial shares of it. You could have bought, bought them before. So it's a great way to get started. And it's a good way to get your feet wet. It's a good way to experience the thrills of buying your first stock. I still remember the nerves and the shakiness that I had when I bought Microsoft way back in 2013 or 14. And so it's, uh, you know, that was almost 10 years ago. It's kind of crazy to think about, but the sooner you get started, the better. And a beginner is a beginner and it doesn't matter what level of income you're starting at. We're all starting at, you know, the first time you start, you're a beginner. And so it doesn't matter what level of income you're starting with. The more important factor is having the money to invest and creating a budget and finding that money so that you can start to invest is really the best way to go. So Alicia, I'm, I'm glad you're interested in doing this and I'm glad you're starting because it's going to pay dividends, no pun intended. Well, maybe a little bit in the long run. So keep it up. All right, so let's move on to the next part of the question. So uh, she asked, what do you think of robo-advisors? I was thinking about starting there just to start somewhere. So thank you, Alicia, for that question. Andrew, what are your thoughts on robo-advisors? I don't like them. That said, in the context of if the decision is, do I do robo-advisors or do I just, what did Charlie and Warren say, <laughs> suck on our thumbs? 
the question is between those two. Yeah, definitely at least do something. I just, in general, don't like robo-advisors for a ton of reasons. I had a mixed experience. I used uh, Betterment a while ago, and I had kind of a mixed experience with it. It was convenient. It was easy to put money in there, so that was great. And it was easy to get started. There weren't lots of choices, so I didn't have like information overload. But the frustrating thing was when the market started to turn on me and I wanted to try to change my allocation or take some of the money out, I couldn't do it. And so that was a little bit frustrating for me. I couldn't change where the money was going. And it just automatically put money where my allocation was and I wasn't able to change it. I didn't like that. So for me, it didn't allow enough control. But I think in the right circumstances, it's probably perfect for people that want to get started. And like Andrew said, if it's a choice between not not or doing, I would rather have you do than, than not. I would 100,000% rather you buy an index fund. It's just as simple and easy, arguably. You could do something like the SPY, which just you'll buy the entire market, which is the entire S&P 500, top biggest 500 biggest companies in the world. And just do that and you're invested and you don't have to worry about whether you want to pick for your very first investment because you're just buying the market. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yep, I 100% agree with that. That's a great point. And you don't have to yell at any robots when it when it doesn't go right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't have to get. You can only get frustrated at the computer. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next question. So we have hi Andrew and Dave. What are your thoughts on investing in companies that give the same dividend amount regardless of performance? For example, the United States Steel Corporation ticker X has given the same five cent dividend every quarter for almost 15 years, besides starting a pandemic and recovery went to a penny. To me, you are limiting yourself on upside when your investment could have a record year and still the same dividend. I'd love to hear your, what you guys think. Thanks for everything you guys do in teaching beginners how to be more active in planning for their future, William. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on the dividend and paying a dividend? And I'd like to hear from the Drip King on this. <laughs> well, I agree with William. I don't like flat dividends either. I want to buy companies that are increasing their dividends year after year after year. I wouldn't say that I will not buy a stock that has a flat dividend, I've done it in the past. I'll probably do it again one day. I mean, we'll see. NVIDIA look, is starting to look attractive if it comes down another 50%, maybe. Right. But, uh, <laughs> I agree that it's it would be frustrating to me to see a company get a bunch of profits and keep their dividend flat. And then you have to wonder, what are they doing with those profits? Yeah, you do. So I guess the question that kind of, I guess I think about, so the company that he used for this example, I'm not super familiar with, but it's in the steel industry and that's very cyclical, correct? And I'm just guessing based on some of the conversations that you have, have had about that industry, that the earnings are probably roller coaster <laughs> up and down quite a bit. And so I would wonder if paying a, a flat dividend for a company like that, which to me, is a very sure company in that industry. Yeah, they would be growing, but if their earnings are all over the place, it would probably be hard for them to grow the dividend too, though, wouldn't it? It's a very good point. And maybe it is smart for that situation, you know, because they right. do know that, like, at any given year, things are going to be feast or famine. And mm -hmm. we got to be extra safe in case things dry up, right? Right. But as an investor, nobody's putting a gun to your head to say, hey, you have to invest in these boom, bust, feast or famine industries. I very generally tend to stay away from them. There's plenty of other companies who don't have that problem. And mm -hmm. so you get those dividends that grow every year. And it's like um, gasoline on your snowball when you get those right. dividends. <laughs> and a company's good at, at growing them like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a good analogy. So I guess a couple other things kind of along the lines of thinking about dividends, especially with a company that's paying flat dividends. On the counter argument, I'll give you a company, Constellation Software, which is a company that's based out of Canada. They have paid a flat $1 dividend for the last 10 years. It hasn't grown at all. But the flip side of that is the company's share price is appreciated at around 30% annually compounded over those same 10 years. And so the company has done a great job of reinvesting and has grown you know, exponentially, but it still pays the same flat dividend. And so shareholders are actually pushing back on the company saying, stop paying us the dividend. We don't want it. We want you to reinvest the money 
because you do a better job of reinvesting the money than giving us a dollar. And so the shareholders are actually upset that they're paying a dividend because the company has done such a good job of reinvesting the money on their own. They could earn a better return on that dollar that they give investors than the investors do by getting the dividend. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. And I think it's kind of, it's a little bit along the same lines as why Berkshire has never paid a dividend because Warren can reinvest that money so much better than giving us a dividend. And he can use that to grow the value of the company. So it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of an interesting reversal compared to a company like U.S. Steel. So that's, I guess, something I was thinking about. All right, let's take dividend idea a little bit further. So what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. If you have a company that's paying a flat dividend and all of a sudden they cut it, how do you react to that? Is that a negative? Like U.S. Steel dropped it from you know five cents to a penny. If Microsoft did that, would that be something you'd be like, okay, I, what are we doing here? It definitely gives you concern of a potential red flag because it very much signals to investors that we're needing to conserve our cash for a number of reasons. So yeah, it would definitely raise that red flag to say, hey, let's look at what's going on here. Right. If you saw a company that was paying a flat dividend, would you look further into their capital allocation? In other words, the money that they're reinvesting, would you look further into whether they're doing maybe a higher percentage or a growing percentage of share buybacks? Would that be something that could offset that? Yeah, it totally could. So my thought on the dividend, which is not a very popular one, we'll, we'll put it that way. People that are experts like the buff dog himself have said how much they prefer not paying the dividend for Berkshire. So for me, it, I see it like a guardrail, just in the same way I see dollar cost averaging and diversification, balanced position sizing as guardrails. It's like, I'm pretty confident that I, I can make good decisions, right? I'm pretty confident that I can evaluate managements and their capital allocation. And I'm pretty confident I can do all those things, but I'm going to put the guardrails up just in case to limit from throwing it into the gutter. And so for me, I agree there's always exceptions to the rule. Constellation software is obviously an exception to the rule. I mean, growing a share price 30% a year is ridiculous. Kudos to them. Same thing with Warren Buffett, you know, he's been like just the greatest of all time at, at capital allocation, but we could probably count on our couple of hands on our fingers, how many people are actually that skilled at capital allocation. And so where I like the dividend is it kind of puts a little bit of a guardrail on at least a CEO cannot come in and completely spend everything and I have nothing left. And we've seen some CEOs like that lately. I'm not going to name any names, but we've discussed on our podcast of CEOs are making questionable investments. So I like the dividend for that purpose in that it forces discipline on CEOs. And if I were to take a group of 20 CEOs, I don't think 20 of them would be as good as Buffett or Constellation Software. And so as an overall philosophy, I like doing that with a group of companies. 
I think that's a good philosophy. And, and I like that idea of the guardrail. Like you, like you said, they can't come in and spend all the money because a good portion of it, depending on the company is already, you know, spoken for. So they can't, they can't dip into that piggy bank and, you know, make a poor choice buy an AOL or, or Yahoo or something like that. And, you know, completely, you know, blow $550 billion or whatever it was for. Well, I guess they still could. 550. Yeah. You could, you yeah, could still throw could. the ball over the guardrail, by the way. If a CEO is. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Gonna do it, he'll do it. Like, right? Yeah. Not gonna stop. Him. I suppose that's right. <laughs> <laughs> if they're desperate, if they're desperate enough, they're gonna they're gonna go out and borrow as much money as they need to <laughs> to buy things. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. All right. So why don't we move on to our last question of the evening? So we have, uh, let me first say thank you guys for all the great information you share with others via the website and the podcast. I had a question for the podcast that I don't know has been touched on before in detail. I'm starting to make my own valuation models, a DCF and a dividend discount based off of your guys' post slash website. I noticed that at times you guys differ on the risk-free rate used in the post. You guys had both used the average S&P gains 10% and Professor Damodaran's rate currently 5.23%. The difference can make drastic changes to evaluations, so I was curious to hear your guys' thought on what rate you choose to use and why. Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. So, Andrew, I'm going to let you serve first on this. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on this? Okay, so first off, if that was a lot of jargon... Yeah, it is a lot of jargon. So this is really, really advanced and we're starting to dip our toes into like corporate finance and valuation. So if you're a beginner and you, you don't even know what we're talking about, don't, maybe you can just turn off and tune in for next week. But <laughs> basically what you are trying to find with the risk-free rate is what he's talking about. The discount rate, 
or the risk-free rate? Yeah, well, it was, I think it was a little of both. A little bit yeah, of he, both. He mentions both. Yeah, it's a little of both. Okay. Well, the risk-free rate's not really a debate. What the discount rate is trying to do is it's trying to say, look, if I have a bird in the hand, is that worth more than two in the bush? Basically, if I keep this $100 for myself now, does that give me more satisfaction than let's say $10 in 20 years? Okay. So that's going to depend on a couple of factors. One is like, how bad is inflation going to get? Is that money I'm getting in 20 years going to be worth enough to be able to give me the same amount of goods and services it could buy, the $10 could buy me today? So that's part of what the discount rate is trying to do. The discount rate is also trying to account for the fact that there's risk when you buy stocks. And so as an example, if I know I could go and put money in a bank at 3% and you're going to give me a stock that only earns 3%, that's not a good trade-off for me because I took a bunch of risk buying that stock and I didn't even beat what the bank was offering. So that's where you get the discount rate because the discount rate says that you expect more than just the 3% that you could get from the bank. You expect more than that because you're taking on more risk. And so that's why discount rates change all of the time. Interest rates move daily. And if you've been following along with what's going on with residential real estate and trying to get a mortgage or even just car loans, credit card loans, all the things that are tied to interest rates, they've all been moving and they moved a lot in the past couple of years. So you will see when you go online and you read other people's valuation models and their discount rates, keep in mind that those things change as interest rates change. And so, you know, if, if Professor Domodoran used a 5% discount rate in the middle of 2020. And we're, if I'm using like a 9% discount rate today, it's because interest rates went from basically zero to, you know, the 10 years at like 3% now it's a big difference. And that's why you'll see big differences in the discount rate. So that would, I guess would be the first way I would try to explain an overall one-on-one on discount rates. And I think that's a very good explanation. I like the comparison of putting your money in a bank or buying a stock because the risk that's involved in those two investments is really the telling difference between what discount rate you use to offset to that risk because there's unquestionably more risk buying a company than there is putting your money in the bank. And the kind of the same idea when you think about a risk-free rate, that's really what it is, is it's supposed to illustrate this is the minimum investment I can make without taking any risk, ergo the term risk-free rate. And if you invest anything above that, you have to account for any of that risk. It can be a risk investing in the business. It could be a risk investing in the comp or the country. It could be a risk investing in the economy or maybe even the sector that you're buying. Because if you think about different kinds of industries, they're going to have different risk levels. Investing in something that's a lot more speculative, whether it's cryptocurrency or whether it's some newfangled technology that hasn't been fully adopted, that's going to have a lot more risk than investing in something like Walmart or a bank, because those are more mature businesses that have been around for a while, have stable businesses, stable cash flows. And so the risk of investing in Walmart versus risking investing in something that's more speculative, like a Web3, and I'm not bashing on crypto, I'm just saying that that's just, it's just a more speculative investment. And so to offset that, 
they set discount rates higher or lower depending on each business that you invest in. And you do that to account for that additional risk because you have to look at that $100 that you're investing in a crypto versus a Walmart. And five years from now, that money will be worth, there's going to be more risk, which is going to increase the level of a discounting of that hundred dollars, you know, five years from now, which means that money is worth less to you today than it would be in five years. And so it just means that's, that's really kind of how the whole theory works. Now, discount rates can be a very controversial slash polarizing subject sometimes among investors. And you'll see differing views and opinions on what is the best way to go about doing it. I've seen and I've read about investors that will set a really high hurdle rate, they call it, a 10%, a 12%, a 15% hurdle rate to invest. And they use that as their discount rate to discount those cash flows in the businesses. And in theory, that's not a bad idea. But the flip side of that is, you know, in a today's environment, if you throw a 15% discount rate of valuation model, you're going to come back with almost nothing to invest in because you're going to be so far below today's current prices. Good luck finding something to invest in. And if you do, you might want to be afraid <laughs> of the things that you're going to find some pretty big value traps. So there's that to consider. There's also the consideration of the fundamentals of the business really drive the returns of the business. And in the stock market, eventually those will make an impact. In the short term, it's going to be a voting machine. In the long term, it's going to be a weighing machine. Ben Graham said that. Warren Buffett has said that. And what that really means is you have to look at how the business is reinvesting to grow. Every business, even Apple, <laughs> has to reinvest to grow their business. And so to Andrew and I, one of the things that we like to do is we like to look at the fundamentals of the business. And when we think about discount rates, you know, I'm not going to speak for Andrew, but my personal preference is to look at the fundamentals of the business and base that on how the company reinvests and what they use to invest. And you really have kind of two choices. Well, three choices. You have debt, you have cash, and you have equity. And those are the ways that you can reinvest in the business and not accounting for those in the discount rate compared to the investments that the company makes, I think is not always the best choice. And that's the way that I like to do it. But investing is personal. Finances, it can be personal. And so choosing what discount rate you think is going to be best can be personal. But I have really studied Professor Domodoran as well as Michael Mobison's writings a lot, and they really adhere to using the fundamentals to dis to determine a discount rate for an investment, which means that every company that you analyze is going to have different discount rate as you go along. But the components are going to be the same along the same lines. I hope that helps. Yeah, I really like the breakdown and the way you tied in the discount rate to risk and, and value. You know, higher discount rate means the value of, that you're estimating is going to be lower. There's two things that I just want to clarify. So one is you do get different... There's different disagreements on the details of discount rates, but most good investors they have like a common set of principles that they all agree to. So a good example was like the 15% discount rate. I think even some of the investors that I can think of who have done that haven't bought a stock in years. So <laughs> that's right. not really practical to me. So you kind of have like these high and low, like 
super low discount rates, like a 4% discount rate, that's pretty ridiculous too. So there's like bounds and limits to the discount rate. And there's actually two types of discount rates, which might be confusing if you're like picking and choosing which blog posts of mine or Dave's you're reading, because there's two different ways to come to the same valuation. There's free cash flow of the firm, which takes the whack, or the free cash flow of the equity, which takes the cost of equity. And so those are two completely different discount rates. They eventually get to the same place, but they're two different ways to skin a cat. And you have to add and subtract things to make them to take the firm to equity and or to keep equity to equity. So I think you use the 30 year for your risk free rate. And that's probably a Domodoran thing, right? I know a lot of analysts on the street like to use 10 year treasury. So that's what I use. But those rates for the risk free rate are so similar that it's really almost like you're pinching pennies at that point. But <laughs> yeah. we, I mean, it's funny. We had a discussion literally before coming on. We were talking about we did. valuation. And so. Yeah, well, you you won't agree 100% with somebody on some of this stuff, especially around discount rates. And I think Charlie Munger said it the best. His quote was, I've never heard an intelligent conversation about discount rates. So, you know, maybe know enough to like understand the general concept, but don't get bogged down in, oh my goodness, my discount rates, you know, half a percent different than somebody else's. Like it really, you're pinching pennies with the end result to what the estimate of intrinsic value is. Yep, totally. I think when you think about trying to value a company, there's a couple things you want to keep in mind. First of all, you're never going to find the exact number. And so please don't get bogged down in the minutia of spending all this time, you know, like Andrew said, quibbling about, Six and a half percent versus six point seven five percent for a discount rate. It's not that important. What's more important is understanding the business and understanding how inputs impact the DCF or the valuation model, because that is going to go much farther in helping you determine a fair value. It's better to find a range to look at once you have a model built. It's real easy to just adjust some of the numbers to kind of give you a high and low. So if you're really optimistic about this company can grow at 15% and now, okay, great. Here's the value of the company. Now, maybe it doesn't hit that. Maybe it only hits 10%. Okay, so here's the value. And let's say things really go south for whatever reason and it's only going to grow at 8%. So here's the value. So now you kind of have a range and then you can kind of work with your analysis to determine whether you think those are likely, you know, viable numbers to work with. And that's more important. The other thing that I think is really important is looking at the difference between the reinvestment of the company versus the cost of those reinvestments. And so looking at a return on invested capital or return on equity versus the cost of capital or the cost of equity, because that's really what's going to drive the growth of the company in the future. One of the reasons why a Microsoft and an Apple are so ridiculously valuable is because they have these huge returns on investment versus the cost of making those investments. I'll just give you a, a simple example. If a company's if its return on invested capital is 40%, that means for every dollar that it invests, it actually grows a dollar forty in return. Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. And so, and if the cost of that is only you know seven percent, then the margin is even higher. So that's really where the value of the company 
comes from is is looking at those two ratios. You can't just value the company on those. You have to understand the components of them. But if you understand the relationship between the discount rate or the cost of equity or capital, whichever one you prefer to use, and the returns that they generate from those costs, that's really going to help you give give a good sense of how valuable that company is going to be. That's why a company like Visa and MasterCard and Apple and Amazon and Google are all such valuable companies because they have these huge returns on their investments. That's something that you want to look for as well. So don't quibble on the final number. Don't get so tied down in the minutia of, you know, it's, my growth rate's got to be 12.24%. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's ultimately not that important. And also keep in mind that Warren Buffett does all this in his head. So the dude's got a computer in his head. He can do all this in his head. I can't. I need Excel. <laughs> I'm not that smart. And so, you know, just kind of think about, you know, that the inputs you put in are important, but don't get bogged down in the minutia. Very well said. All right, folks. Well, with that, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for this evening. I want to thank everybody for taking the time to run those fabulous questions. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to send us those. Those are great. Please keep them coming. And it's a lot of fun for us to talk about those things. If there's anything that we discussed today that is a little bit over your head, and you're like, I've heard of cost of equity. I don't know what that is. Go to our website. There's a great search bar at the top. Type in cost of equity, and you're going to see a whole bunch of articles that will help explain all that to you. So it can be a very helpful tool for you to learn more about what we're talking about or dividends or anything else that we discussed today. That's at einvestingforbeginners.com. All right. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.